Our scripture reading today is from John 14, 1 through 7. This is found on page 901 in your pew Bible. If you don't own a Bible, we would love you to take that one home with you as a gift. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also, and you know the, the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Becky. Well, good morning again, and welcome to the Brookside campus of, of Christ Community. Uh, it's good to be with you this morning. My name is Taylor, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I have the privilege of leading us uh, this morning in a time of teaching where we look uh, at God's Word and, and understand what it has for us today in this moment where we are in 2020. Uh, but before we do that, would you join me in prayer? Father God, this morning we know and acknowledge that we need you that we need you to uh, go through the, the daily things and tasks that we have before us each day and each week, that we need you in our families, that we need you in our world. And God, this morning we need you, we need your spirit to help us to understand your word, to help us to trust the promise that you make to us this morning. And God, I pray that that would be the effect, that your spirit would be present with us, that you would open our ears and hearts, and that your word uh, would not bounce off of our ears, but would dwell richly in our hearts. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of His Spirit. Amen. Well, uh, way back in the day, before there was Venmo, or Apple Pay, or credit, or debit cards, or wave your phone in the general direction of the Aldi cashier, uh, people used to give each other money by using these little pieces of paper that we called checks. And I included one here for you in case you've never seen one before or don't believe me. Uh, but this is how people used to give each other money. In fact, when I was 14, my mom took me to the bank in the small town where I grew up and got me a whole book of these little pieces of paper so that I could learn how to give other people money responsibly. Now, little did she know that we were on the cusp of the obsolescence of these pieces of paper, but nevertheless, I got what we know now as, or knew then, I guess, both times, as checkbooks. Now, a big thing in the town where I grew up uh, was going to the local gas station called the Seamart and getting a kind of pizza called Hunt Brothers Pizza. And that's when you know when you're in a small town is when gas station pizza is like the big thing you can do. Uh, but that's, that's what it was when, when we grew up. So when I went to the gas station, I, as a 14-year-old, I would take out my checkbook and I would grab a piece of pizza and I would write, pay to the order of the Seamart. And then I would write $2.39 over 100. 
And then I would go down to the next line, and they made you spell it out. So I would write $2.39 over 100. And then there was a little memo line in the bottom left corner where I could say, for pizza. And then I would sign it, and I would hand this piece of paper to the C-Mart cashier, and th then I would take a piece of pizza, and I would walk out of the store. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. That's like the biggest cheat code of all time, right? <laughs> like, you just give people pieces of paper, and you get things that you don't even have to have money, right? And it would be nice if it worked that way, but unfortunately, in order for the check to work, I had to have at least $2.39 in my bank account, uh, which as a high school student with no job was never certain, but I had to have at least $2.39 so that when the check was cashed, the bank could give the good people of CMART $2.39. That's how it worked. So essentially, checks functioned more as a sort of promise, a promise that I have the resources needed to pay for the pizza. But something else had to happen for CMART to receive the money that I was giving them, and it's this. They had to take the check to the bank physically and cash it in. They had to cash in the check. See, it wasn't good enough for me to write the check or even to have the resources in the bank to make good on the check the people receiving the check had to use it. They had to act in a way that trusted that the person who wrote it could pay the promised amount. Now, why am I telling you this trivial information besides just giving you a useless history lesson? The reason I'm telling you this is because this is how all promises work. This is how every single promise works. See, in order for promises to work, first you need the promise itself, like the substance of the thing that is being promised. I promise this. But anyone who has had someone back out of a commitment knows that it's not enough to just have a promise that's made, right? The person making the promise actually has to be able to keep the promise. They have to have the resources and capacity necessary to follow through on the promise that they are making. In fact, no promise is, is any good if the person making the promise can't keep the promise. But even that isn't enough for a promise to be effective, is it? See, once the promise is made and provided that the promise maker can keep it, the person receiving the promise has to do something with it. They have to use the promise. They have to rely on the promise they have to act in a way as if they believe the promise is legit. That's how all promises work. Now today, Jesus is going to make a promise to his disciples, and through the disciples, he's going to make a promise to us. And this promise is so important that we're basing an entire series on it that we are calling, What Are We Waiting For? What are we waiting for? And this promise that Jesus makes works like all promises do. So in our time together, we're going to start uh, by taking some time to examine the promise that Jesus is making. What is he actually promising to us? And then we'll, we'll test its legitimacy. In other words, is Jesus able to follow through on the promise? And finally, we'll, we'll take some time to see what it could look like to live as if this promise is the real deal, to cash it in. So if you haven't already, turn with me to the Gospel of John chapter 14. And the John who wrote this Gospel is the same John who 
recorded what he saw in the book of Revelation, which is the book that we just finished studying. Uh, It's one of the closest disciples to Jesus. And in this section of the gospel, we're we're dropping into is what is usually called the farewell discourse, uh, which is exactly what it sounds like. Jesus is saying farewell. He's saying goodbye to his disciples. Uh, Some people also refer to it as as the upper room discourse, so apparently it took place in some room that was high. Uh, but, But this is the chapters 13 through 17 of the gospel of John, and Jesus is saying goodbye to his disciples. And where we're picking up in in chapter 14, Jesus has just told his disciples for one of the first times that he has to go away. And on top of that, he says that they can't follow him to where he is going just yet. What's more, not only are they not able to go with him, but he tells Peter, one of the most prominent disciples, that he will deny him in the next 24 hours. And evidently, all this news is deeply concerning to the disciples because Jesus begins chapter 14 by saying this. He says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Now, the idea that Jesus was leaving was, was troubling to the disciples. And I want to just take a minute to, to get in their shoes, because I think that, that we read that today and we're like, oh, that's so nice. They loved him so much. They didn't ever want to be apart from him. They couldn't stand the thought of him leaving them. And while that's true, there's more going on here. See, remember, these disciples, they had left behind their families, their jobs, They left behind their homes, their friends, their entire livelihood to follow this person named Jesus. Now, why did they do that? The entirety of their hope that led them to leave everything behind was that they believed that Jesus was the Messiah. He was the one that God had sent to free Israel from oppression and to reign as God's king. That's why they left everything behind. So they had staked everything on this belief, and and crucially, nowhere in the Jewish expectation of a Messiah was there any room for a Messiah who would leave, much less a Messiah who would leave before he had established God's kingdom fully, and much less a disciple who would leave because he was going to die. There was no room in the Jewish imagination for that kind of a Messiah. So in other words, as as one scholar puts it, hearing that Jesus was leaving meant that the disciples were on the brink of a catastrophic failure. A catastrophic failure. So no wonder they were troubled. And Jesus is about to tell them in a couple of chapters that there's even more trouble coming for them. There will be trouble that will make them sorrowful while the world rejoices. There will be trouble that, that, that makes them struggle in the work they have left to do even after the devastating fact of Jesus leaving. So what Jesus does then to comfort his disciples in the face of their uncertainty and their concern is this. He gives them a promise. He gives them a promise. See if you you pick up on what it is starting back in verse 2. Read with me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If not, I would have told you. I am going away to prepare a place for you. So Jesus first says that the reason I am going away is actually for your benefit. 
that I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to prepare a home for you. That's why I'm going away. So it's actually for your good. But then comes the the promise. We keep reading. If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. That's the promise. That I am going away, but not forever. And you can't go with me now because I have to make it so that you can actually come, but I won't forget you. I will come back so that you can join me where I am. Which then begs the question, where is he going? He describes the place that he's going as his father's house. So he says, I am going to my father. And he says this this house of his father's is a place that has many rooms or or dwelling places. Now, now for the the Jewish listeners uh, uh, to Jesus' words, uh, that would have called to mind this idea of the father's house and a lot of rooms would have called to mind the temple that was in Jerusalem. See, the temple in Jerusalem uh, had a lot of, of rooms, and it was often seen as this place where, where this God's space or God's presence dwelt on earth. So, so God's presence was, was in the temple, and humans were able to go and to, to meet with God's presence in the temple. And that's where, where kind of heaven and earth came together. And the idea also was that there was a, a copy of this temple that looked pretty much like the, the temple on earth in heaven. And that was what was God's house. And it had a lot of, of dwelling places just like the temple. So the idea here is that Jesus is going to be with his father and in the presence of his father. And that there's plenty of space for his disciples to be with him there too. There are many rooms And that place is going to feel a lot like home to these confused and disoriented disciples. So what is this place that he's promising? What is this this place that he's calling the Father's house? Well, for centuries, the church has summed it up in one word, and that's heaven. Heaven is the promise. The promise that Jesus will take his people to be with God his Father. It's heaven. And in fact, that is the most fundamental thing we know about heaven from scriptures. There's a lot of vagueness around what heaven will will be like, but at the most basic, we know that heaven is a place that God has promised. Heaven is a place that God has promised. Before anything else, heaven is God's promise to us. Heaven is a place that God has promised. And that clears things up to say that Jesus is talking about heaven, but only sort of, because heaven is one of the most misunderstood and confusing concepts in the entire Bible. And if you don't believe me about that, just take a minute and think about how heaven is portrayed in our popular culture. Like when we talk about heaven, is it just a place where we are bored in the clouds forever? Is it a place where St. Peter makes fun of us and won't let us in? Is it a place with angels that look like toddlers where we play harps all day? Or maybe it's just the place where our pets go and they're waiting for us there. 
And our heaven misconceptions aren't just the stuff of those cartoons. Uh, Here was was Ernest Hemingway's best guess in the 1925 letter he wrote to F. Scott Fitzgerald. This is uh, pretty remarkable. Here's what he says. He says, to me, heaven would be a big bullring and a trout stream outside that no one else was allowed to fish in and two lovely houses in town. One where I would have my wife and children and be monogamous and love them truly and well. Sounds good so far. And the other where I would have my nine beautiful mistresses on nine different floors. And there would be a fine church where I could go and be confessed on the way from one house to the other. And I would get on my horse and ride out with my son to my bull ranch and toss coins to all my illegitimate children that lived along the road. Is that heaven? My guess is, if we surveyed even just the people in this room and asked, what do you think heaven will be like, we'd get answers that are all over the map. Like, hopefully better than Hemingway's, but all over the map, nevertheless. And we're going to take the rest of this series to talk a little bit about what heaven is like, what we can know about heaven from Scripture. But before we do that, a more fundamental question lies before us today. And it's the question that we rarely ask out loud, especially as Christians. It's the question that we feel deeply at every funeral, which is why many of us don't like going. And it creeps up in our minds and hearts whenever we consider our own inevitable passing from this world into the next. And it just so happens to be the first question that goes with every promise. Is heaven real? In other words, is it legit? Does Jesus have the money in the bank to make good on this promise? And if not, is it even worth waiting for? And for some of you right now, that's a genuine question. You may be unfamiliar with the concept of heaven from a biblical perspective, or you might just truly doubt its existence. And for others, I wonder if if maybe we don't have a mind problem with heaven, but we might have a heart problem. That maybe we're half-hearted in our belief in heaven. We don't think about it, we aren't excited about it, we don't anticipate it, has very little impact on our daily lives. Maybe we're just a bit apathetic. We hope it's there. We, we wish it would be nice if, if heaven was real, but it doesn't really change much today. And wherever you are on that spectrum that I just described, just know that you aren't alone in that place. I've been all over that, and so were Jesus' disciples. Just look at how Thomas asks a question in a similar vein, starting in verse 5. Well, actually, verse 4, Jesus uh, starts by telling his disciples, you know the way to where I am going. Now, the disciples wouldn't have known that he was talking about what we think is heaven yet. Uh, So Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Now, that's a legitimate question, right? Like, we, we don't know what you're talking about. And if you're going away, can we get a, a map or some, some like, trails that I, we can follow to get to that place where you're going? But when Thomas asks for a map, Jesus doesn't hand the mo- him most recent bestseller of someone who died and had a near-death experience and saw heaven. What he does is he points Thomas to himself. Look what he says. Thomas says, how can we know the way? 
And Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will also know my Father. And from now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. So when Thomas asks for directions or something to give himself a little more certainty about this place Jesus is going, Jesus points to himself and says, I am the way. If you know me, you know my Father, which means you know the way to his house. Now when Jesus says these words, he knows something and we know something that the disciples don't, right? We know that that Jesus is 70, less than 72 hours away from rolling back the stone and leaving a tomb empty on Sunday morning. When he says he is the way, he's saying more than just believe my words. Just like believe the things I say hard enough and, and you'll get there. He's saying more than just believe my words. He's saying watch what I do. Watch me go to the cross. Watch me die in humiliation. Watch me rise again. See me appear to you. That's how I'm going to prepare a place for you. My death and resurrection are going to make it possible for you to come too. In fact, the entire promise of heaven, this is important, the entire promise of heaven hinges on the validity of the early Christian proclamation that Christ died, buried, was raised on the third day, and appeared in a resurrection body to hundreds of people. That's what all of the promise of heaven hinges on. If that didn't happen, the promise isn't legit. So friends, if you want to know that heaven is real this morning, if you want to know that the promise is legit, look no further than the empty tomb. Because the earliest Christians testify that heaven is real because Jesus is risen. Heaven is real because Jesus is risen. Later on, people like the Apostle Paul will will argue that that Jesus' resurrection is the down payment of our own resurrection, which is just another way of saying the resurrection of Jesus is proof that God has the money in the bank to make good on his promise. Friends, Easter morning is Jesus' exclamation point on the promise of heaven. So for the skeptics out there in this room this morning, or even for the skeptical at heart, listen, the empty tomb is one of the most irrefutable facts of history there is. All the evidence that we have affirms this basic truth. Now, people disagree on what that means, but very few people deny that there was no body in a tomb on Sunday morning. Every disciple, every church father was willing to die for that fact. Even the first anti-Christian argument that ever existed was not that Jesus was still in the tomb, but rather that the disciples stole the body and then contrived mass hallucinations of hundreds of other people who claimed to see the risen Lord. That's the first argument ever against Christianity. And just as a side note, all of this is, as while apparently becoming more bold than we ever see them in the Gospels, being willing to die for something they had no conception of and couldn't even understand 24 hours prior, being willing to die for something that was unprecedented in Jewish belief about the afterlife. No one thought, had any imagination for a single person dying, raising again. 
And all this while becoming the first messianic movement ever to get stronger after the death of its leader instead of dying out. Friends, something happened on Easter morning. Something happened on Easter morning. And all the best evidence we have points to a resurrected Jesus. Now listen, you might not be there yet, and that's okay. That's entirely okay. But at the very least, I want to push every single one of us to ask this question this morning. What if heaven was real? What if? What if heaven was real? What if Jesus has the ability to make good on his promise? What would that change? Because friends, if, if Jesus was born in a Bethlehem manger 2,000 years ago, if he has risen and risen indeed, and if he appeared to hundreds of people in a new kind of body that can never die again, then all bets are off. The verdict is already in, and the promise is sure. And it has the power to change your life. I truly believe. It's this very reason that Jesus encourages his disciples back in verse 1 when he says, believe in God, believe also in me. That word believe is, is better rendered usually as trust. And to trust means more than just to blindly assent to an idea. It means more than believe my words. It means to live your life in reliance on something. That's what it means to trust in God, to trust in Jesus. And if you've been tracking so far, you remember that this is the last piece to the promise puzzle, right? A promise does nothing, even if it's real, even if it's valid, even if it's legit. It does nothing if it's never cashed in. It does nothing. Which means that if heaven is a place that Jesus has promised, and if it is real because Jesus is raised, then we should begin to live and act as if the promise of heaven is legit. That's what that calls us to do. And this is right in line with another way that Scripture talks about heaven, which, which goes like this. That heaven is working already in those who are waiting. That heaven is already working in those who are waiting. This just so happens to be the first Sunday in a season in the church calendar that we call Advent. And Advent is just a fancy word that means coming. So in the season of Advent, we look back at the first coming or Advent of Jesus, and we look ahead to the second coming, the second Advent of Jesus, when Jesus says, I will come to get you and take you to where I am. That's what we're looking forward to. This is the season of Advent. And see, the season of Advent is a season that's all about waiting and longing. It's a season that's all about getting in touch with the things that we're longing for and the things that we're waiting for. And one of the things that we are waiting and longing for, I believe even if some of us don't say we follow Jesus yet, I think that a lot of us are waiting and longing for something like the promise of heaven. That's part of why we're calling this series, What Are We Waiting For? It is common to human existence that we long for a place that is truly home. 
We wait desperately, as Paul says in Romans 8, we groan with the creation for God's new creation to come, for him to restore the world. We long for God's way to be the way of the world. We long for for wrongs to be made right. We long for sorrow to turn into joy. We long for tears of suffering to be wiped away. We long for God's presence to flood the earth and to be with us. And that's why we say in the creed that we recited earlier this morning that we look forward to the resurrection of the dead and in the life in the world to come. That's just another way of saying we look forward to heaven. We long for heaven. And that longing is only more acute because many of us have already seen glimpses of God's kingdom at work in the person of Jesus and, and, and how the Spirit has moved in and through his people over the past 2,000 years. We've seen what God's kingdom looks like. We've seen what it looks like for, for broken hearts to be restored. We've seen what it looks like for sick people to be healed, for the dead to be raised. We've seen what it looks like when God has his way in the world, and that just makes us long for it even more. Here's how author Scott McKnight puts it. I think this is so good. He says, heaven people, heaven people, people who wait for heaven, have tasted the grandeur of heaven, and therefore they long for heaven to begin its work now on earth. They've tasted the grandeur of heaven. They long for heaven's work to begin now on earth. One of the things that the biblical authors claim about heaven goes like this, that the new life of heaven has already begun in those who know Jesus and those who wait for him to return and establish the new heavens and the new earth. And this is important to to grasp, and it's kind of hard to grasp, So, so stick with me. The biblical authors speak of heaven both as a future reality that hasn't yet come fully and a present reality that began to break into the world with the first advent of Jesus. And heaven's mission, do you know heaven has a mission? Heaven's mission in the present is to invade the earth with its reign until Christ is all in all. Scholar N.T. Wright brilliantly describes the implications of this dual reality in his book, Surprised by Oak. Here's what he says. He says, our task in the present, how we cash in on the promise, is to live as resurrection people in between Easter and the final day with our Christian life, corporate and individual, in both worship and mission as a sign of the first and a foretaste of the second. In other words, we are invited to join heaven's mission to usher in new creation now, even while we wait and desperately long for a future heaven where new creation will be all we know. Which means that right now, we do everything we can to love Jesus by keeping his word as he commands the disciples in just a couple chapters. Which means we make things right now by seeking justice. Which means we contribute to the beauty and redemption of creation with our work. Which means we invite others to trust the promise. We reach out to those who don't yet rely on the promise. Which means we embody the depth of relational joy that we will one day share with others. And so much more that we'll see in the coming weeks as we talk more about what heaven is like. But that's what it looks like to cash in on the promise. To live as people bound for new creation by seeking God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven today. We'll talk about what heaven's like. We'll talk more about what that means for us. But friends, heaven is real. Jesus proved it. It's already at work in those who wait for him. And in the meantime, he makes this promise to us. He says, where I am going, if you rely on me, you're going 
too. And I imagine that day that will arrive, we will no doubt exclaim, as the unicorn jewel does so beautifully in C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle, we'll get to those shores and we'll say, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we loved the old Narnia, the old world, is that it sometimes looked a little like this. Come further up. Come further in. Let's pray. God, I pray that as we wait for that final home, that you would give us the courage to trust and rely on your promise. That God, as we groan and long for new creation, would we be able to see new creation and new life already working in us, through us, and in our world? And God, we pray with the early church. We pray with Christians who followed you in the medieval times. We pray with Christians who followed you in the 17, 1800s. We pray with Christians of this century. We pray with your spirit, come Lord Jesus and bring your kingdom. May we have courage and hope as we wait for that day of heaven. Pray this in the name of your son Jesus, by the power of his spirit. Amen.